before we get to Malachi, I'd like to introduce us um, to just a new, uh, a, new, a new prayer that we are going to uh, start with Mission Church as part of our service. Um, and so what we're going to do is, uh, on our website, if you don't know, we have a little thing at the bottom where it says you can pray for the nations. Um, and so what we are going to do during our time together um, is whatever one it is on that Sunday, we're going to pray for them. Um, so I have actually a picture um, of this one for today. And so uh, these are, this is a picture of one, but this is uh, the Madura people, and it is the third largest people group in Indonesia. Um, they are renowned across their area for their harsh character and lifestyles, which is probably just caused by um, harsh surroundings and, um, and being oppressed by others. But um, they're, the majority of the Madura people are being very, they're known for being very devout Sunni Muslims, uh, but nevertheless, they seek security uh, by the use of magic spells that are used in an attempt to both control good and bad evil spirits. Um, so the obstacle that the church has right now is that um, the Madura community has long resisted the gospel. Um, there are only a few believers, but that can change. And so uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna pray for the Madura people. So let's pray. Father, we pray now that um, in the midst of the Madura people, not only would you be working with the believers that are there, the few that are there, um, and, and really bless the fruit of the work of, of what they are trying to do um, in getting the gospel to the Madura people, but I pray that you would soften the hearts of the Madura people, Father, that you would be working in them now to show them a, a glimpse, a piece of, of who you are so that, um, so that when the believers do come in to get to talk about Jesus, that they would be open to it. Father, would you open the doors to the gospel here in Madura in Indonesia? God, would this be something that you work? Would this be something that you do, Father? Make this unreached and unengaged people group reached and engaged and let them all become knowers and lovers and uh, ones who behold and love the gospel. This is a work that only you can do, Father, but uh, we pray that you would do it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Malachi 1 We'll, we'll talk through a brief history of just where Malachi is, why we are in Malachi, but um, I've got a question for you. When you have sinned, what do the next moments of your life look like? Do you continue in more sin because, well, I'm already here, so why not? Or do you feel guilt and shame and try to run away from God? Do you know how to return to God? When you have sinned, what do the next moments of your life look like? In the beginning, <clears throat> everything was completely and totally perfect until Adam and Eve sinned. At that point, the just and righteous God banished humans from the garden, and the reason why is because in sin, humans fall short of the glory of God, which is the whole reason that humans were created in the first place. They were created to glorify God, um, to share in this glory, to enjoy this glory. And so humans are out. They are out of the garden. And ever since that moment in the garden, God has been on a mission 
to redeem his people back, to bring them back into proper worship of his glory as it was supposed to be in the garden forever. The mission for, this, for the redemption of God's people is our mission, is our purpose. We are created to glorify God and bring others into the family. And it all starts with uh, God's call to Abraham in Genesis 12. God tells him this, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that, here's the purpose, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises Abraham that the salvation of men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation will come from his lineage and this man will be God's way of bringing his children back to the garden. From this moment on in history, God's people were always looking forward to this one day to come. They called it the Messiah. They knew that their Savior was coming, but they're looking forward to it. And over and over and over again, we see God promising it's going to come. It's going to come for his people to be patient. But from God's perspective, of course it's going to come. We know it's going to come. We know this Messiah is Jesus, but they don't know that. They're still in the old covenant before Jesus came, so they don't know. And they're stuck in this endless cycle of hearing God's promises and having this overwhelming joy because they're like, oh, maybe it's coming soon. And then they become impatient with God when their promises don't come or when it doesn't come in a timely manner for them. So what they do just throughout the Bible is they try to find uh, their own idols that they can worship in those moments so that they can have fulfillment elsewhere. This is just the up and down story of God's people throughout history. So up to this point in Malachi, they've gone from nothing, literally no people, to a huge nation without any land, to having some land, to being captured and enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, to finally being in the promised land, to be then conquered by the Babylonian Empire to spend 70 years in exile. But then just by God's grace, uh, the Babylon Empire falls to Persia um, and God's people are set free to come back home because uh, Persia was just like, we don't want you guys. So Israel's a mess, Jerusalem is in ruins, and then around this time is where we start to see these minor prophets pop up. Uh, Nehemiah, he gets everyone to rebuild the walls. He's like, all right, we're gonna rebuild the walls of, of our city. And then uh, Haggai and Zechariah, they encourage everyone to rebuild the temple. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna make this place our own again. But here in Malachi, everybody's thinking, like, the temple is done. The walls are rebuilt. Everything is in this, it's like, okay, the Messiah should come now. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. And he doesn't come. After some time of twiddling their thumbs, God's people just start grumbling. They start getting upset. Where is God? What kind of love is this? God's not fulfilling his promises. So God's people start living like nothing matters. The priesthood became careless with the sacrifices they were offering. They offered up blind and just mutilated animals for sacrificing. Worship became thoughtless. Divorce became widespread. Justice was being ignored. And God's church overall was just being neglected. To sum up just what that looks like, their hearts were far from God. Their hearts were far from God. God's nation was an apathetic nation. 
none were truly cherishing the glory of God any longer. The, the whole purpose for why they were created, none cared for the church, none cared for the nations, none cared for anything any longer. These people were to live on the word of God alone until he would again move mightily in their midst, but they were finding this really, really difficult. They wanted to see God's power. They wanted to see the Messiah. And when these things weren't coming, they just got tired. Their hearts were far from God. So for the last time, until he does send Jesus the Messiah, God sends one last message through the prophet Malachi. And these will be the last things that God says to his people for over 400 years. To summarize the whole book, uh, God says in chapter 3, return to me and I will return to you. You guys are going through it. It's a hard time. I get that. Uh, it's not in your timing and you're upset about that. Return to me and I will return to you. The whole point of the book, return to me and I will return to you. So let's read Malachi 1. <clears throat> the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and, they, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am, a, I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept it or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place. Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first and foremost for your word to us. And we pray that in this time, God, that whatever, uh, whatever comes up in your word, that you would do surgery on our hearts to tear away the, 
um, the sinful, the fleshy, or the hardened parts of our hearts and that you would give us hearts of flesh. God, if there is anything that, um, that I say in this time that is not from you, I pray that you would help us to all forget it. And if, I, if you give me the thought before, would you, um, would you keep me from saying it? And if any of us have a thought in this time that is against you, that is not according to your word, would you take that from our minds? Help us to see you, Father. Would you transform us by your word again this morning? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you have sinned, what do the next moments of your life look like? When our hearts are far from God, how can we return? That's the question. We see two implications in our text. One is uh, kind of long. Be humbled to a proper perspective. That's number one. If you want to write that down, I'll give you a few minutes. Uh, Be humbled to a proper perspective. And then the second implication is that we see to believe. Be humbled to a proper perspective and believe. When you and I sin, we are saying with our actions, whether or not we think it's true, that we believe that God doesn't love us. We need to be humbled from our sin to a proper perspective, and then in that humility, we believe in the good news that God in Jesus Christ does truly love us. This is how we return. This is how we step back into our sole purpose of glorifying God and living for the eternity of others. So let's take a look at the first one. If you look back to verse one, be humbled to a proper perspective. Verse one begins, the oracle, uh, which, what is an oracle? That's a good question. It's just another word for a burden. So he's like, hey, this has been given to me from God. This is on my shoulders. This is a burden. I'm giving it to you. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, And they're right there. That's the whole problem of the whole text. But you say, we could stop right there. I have loved you. That's all we need. But you say, how have you loved us? They don't believe that God loves them. This is the reason why they are um, in meaningless and careless worship. This is the issue. Like the, the love of God should be enough. But often, what we see in the Bible, and then I think if we're honest with ourselves, what we see with us, it's not really enough. That's the story here in Malachi. They were keeping up appearances, but their hearts were far from what they were doing. So what does this look like? Look down to verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? Again, here's the, here's the issue. Here's the crux of the issue. If God loves us, if God is our father, if God is our master, where is the respect due to him? Because of the lack of proper perspective, because of the lack of seeing God's love and grace to us, this is where careless worship and glorifying come into play. So it keeps going. To you, O priests, who despise my name, You despise my name when you think that I don't love you. But you say, how have we despised your name? Verse seven, by offering polluted food upon my altar. This is is the point of of your heart being far from God. What, What point? 
What is the point? What good does it do if we offer our hearts to God and it's far from God? If we offer up service to God when our hearts are far from God? How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, or sick, is that not evil? Present that, and I love this question, present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor? Like it's just, God's got a sense of humor, I think. Um, but he says the, uh, says the Lord of hosts, and then verse nine, and now entreat. This is really interesting because this uh, verse nine um, in the Greek has these little implications in it that show it's actually ironic. It's divine irony. So it's not a, this is not a command. This is God saying, oh, now you're gonna entreat the favor of God that he, be, that he may be gracious to you. Like, now you're gonna do that. It's a rhetorical question. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Because your hearts are far from God. In fact, it's so serious that in verse 10 he says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For us, it would be better for us to close the doors, and it would be to, to bring in offerings of service with our hearts far from God. This means that for us on a Sunday morning, we pray for what we're about to do. On the way here this morning, we pray. On the way here on Wednesdays, we pray to prepare our hearts for what we're about to read, for what we're about to do. We, we are worshiping our Father. God says that he would rather have no service at all than improper service. God says that he would ha rather have no service at all than service from someone whose heart is far from God. That's not even good enough for an earthly governor. Yet we bring it before the God of the universe. Why would they do this? Why would they be in this place right now? Because they're impatient. Because they don't believe that God loves them. What happens when people get impatient with their Messiah? They start to make their own. Moses was gone for three days up on the mountain talking uh, with God. And all of Israel could see it happening. Three days he was up there. And a bunch of men come to Joshua and say, hey, we're, we know he's up there. Can you make us an idol so that we can worship? <laughs> you can see him. There's a song out uh, by Beautiful Eulogy. If you haven't heard of them, I would please look up Beautiful Eulogy. But um, they have a song called Messiahs, and it says, I can't always even trust my desires, but yet I treat them like my messiahs. I can't even trust these things that I build to become my own Messiah. I can't trust them. I can't trust my feelings. I can't trust what I'm about to worship. Yet I worship it. That's why there's divine irony. That's why God says, what are you doing? Our hearts are false God factories pumping these things out. So God responds with some hard words in verse two. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. This is a hard doctrine. And I want to say that it is okay to struggle with what we read in the Bible. 
are eternal, everlasting, all-knowing, everywhere at all times, past, present, future, in all times and all places at once, gracious to love humans despite their sin, Father, is infinitely difficult to understand. That's a good thing. It is a good thing to have a Savior that we are going to worship that is hard to understand. Who would want to worship something that we could figure out? But one thing I want to encourage you to think about is that this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. These are the words of God. If we come across something in the Bible that we struggle with, 100% of the time, the problem is not God, it is us. If the words that come to mind for us are, man, I, it's gonna be really hard for me to serve a God who, fill in the blank, then in that moment we are saying that we cannot serve a God beyond our comprehension. which our God will always be. Lean into the lack of your own understanding and believe that God is worthy of all worship and praise and honor no matter what he does or what may seem evil to us. But why? Why would God place these words here for these people to read? To humble them to a proper perspective because they don't see his love. That's the, that's the issue. How have you loved us? They straight up ask the question to God. That's a bold move. How have you loved us? They ask this because that time of peace, the time of the Messiah coming hasn't come. The enemies of God, like they're watching across the horizon. They're seeing them prosper and flourish, but not God's people. How have you loved us? And so God does something amazing. He points them to Jacob and Esau to show them what love and hate look like. And this is not a like fuzzy feelings love and, oh, I just hate that person. That's not what that means. Esau was the strong sportsman. Isaac, their father, loved Esau much more than Jacob. Esau was more lovable. Like if you read the story, Esau, like you're like, oh man, I really like Esau. Ah, I don't like Jacob. Jacob was the low life deceiver. Jacob was unfaithful. Yet, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. God is saying in this oracle to his children, my children, you are Jacob. You have run from my love. You've profaned my love. You are unfaithful, yet I choose to love you. It is not up to you for me to love you or I would have chosen Esau. That is a hard doctrine It is not up for you to love. It is not up for, for me. It is not up to you for me to love you or I would have chosen Esau. It's up to God. God is the one who chooses and both of us, both Jacob and Esau are in the same boat of sinner, of, of undeserving of everything, of deserving nothing. And so God would be perfectly just to choose neither of them. Yet he chose Jacob. And so the point of seeing this, for, of the point of, of God saying this to them is, do you see my grace? There was nothing in Jacob, there's nothing in you or I that could make God love us, but it is because God is infinitely gracious that he loves us. The great mystery of faith is that God has mercy at all. We are humbled to a proper perspective to see that the Foot, the, ground le the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
We are all sinners undeserving of everything, deserving of nothing. Why do we need to be humble? To see from a proper perspective. What is this proper perspective? Look at verse five. Your own eyes shall see this. Your own eyes shall see that whatever, the, whatever Esau and the Edomites try to build up, it's not going to work. I will tear down everything. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say in that moment, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Only those who have been humbled by the severity of their sinfulness and by the greatness of the glory of God can see the greatness of the Lord and praise him for it. In order to properly praise God, in order to live according to the purpose of glorifying God and living for the sake of others, in order to return, we must first be humbled to a proper perspective. And it is not fun. But God shows us a glimpse of what his end goal in this humility looks like, what what he's doing ultimately in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. For I, and this is the very last verse, I skipped way down. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is what's gonna happen. One day, my name will be properly worshiped because my name will be properly revered one day. This is the opposite of what the, what the people in Malachi are doing, thinking that God does not love them. Can you think of why they might think that God doesn't love them? Can you think of why they think that God doesn't love them? Because they're in this pattern of sin and not returning to God. The whole point of the book is God saying, return to me, but they aren't. So they're stuck in this pattern over and over again, this habit of sin. And so they don't see the glory of God. And so they don't remember that God's love for them is not ultimately about them, but about God. And so God says, if you knew my purposes, you would be humbled in the fact that I chose you at all. You would know that I love you because it's not up to you, it's up to me. Our proper perspective is to look at our small place in the redemptive history of God and say, great is the Lord. In order to return to the grace of God, we must be humbled by the love and grace of God so that we can see the proper perspective, the proper way to view our lives. What is that? It is purchased by the blood of Christ at the cost of his life not because of anything that we have done, but because of the grace and mercy of God to look on him and pardon me. How do we do this? How do we return? We see, I think all of us in the room know a little bit, I mean, I I feel my sin. I feel my sin. How do we return? Go back to verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. 
I have loved you, says the Lord. If we truly believed this at all times, none of us would dare to sin. Yet we fail to truly believe it. When we are sitting in moments after sin, and we feel guilt and shame and unworthiness, why is it that we do not sprint to the Father? Why do we usually wait a while, sometimes a few days, sometimes even longer, before we even try to pray again? Why do we fight so hard to stay away from God? Because we don't believe that God loves us. It's as simple as that. The love of the Father calls out to us like a lighthouse from the solid shore saying, return to me. I love you. Yet we drown because we think, surely it's not true. Surely no one can love me when I'm like this. I have been offering up horrible service from a, from a heart that is far from God. I sin constantly. Nobody can love me. Yet we so easily forget that it was while we were still weak at the right time that Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, not when we had it all figured out, not when we had a little bit of bumper time in between the time that we sinned and the time when we're like, okay, now we can return. You know, we think that we need to pick up some of the dirty laundry before God comes back, before we can invite God back in. If it was while we were still weak that Christ gave his life for us in the ultimate act of love in Jesus Christ on the cross, while we were still weak, then in our weakest moments of sin, we are still loved. This is Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Here is the question that, uh, that the people here in this book of Malachi that they don't yet get to read. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or sin? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we return to the Lord? Because where else are we so loved? We return by the love of God to us in Christ Jesus. We return to the Lord by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God loved us so much that he sent his son to take our sins and to be punished to death. That we may have life. Love, in fact, is this that a man would lay down his life for his friends. What a savior. 
And so we have the, uh, we have the privilege, we have the joy of seeing what these people in this book did not yet see. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. They were waiting for Jesus. He didn't come, and so they got impatient, and they get, uh, they're like, okay, well, God doesn't love us then. It's not going to happen. So they just started doing things like whatever. But we know. This is not something that we are looking forward to, but something we look back to. That's how solid it is for us. How do we know? We look to the cross. We look to the historical event that happened. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as we do, we remember the most glorious act of love in history. That our God in heaven condescended to earth and lived a perfect life of obedience on behalf of his people so that he could suffer and die on behalf of his people, that that they may have eternal life. When we turn to communion, we remember the broken body and the spilled blood that covers our sin. How do we know? How do we know deep down that we can return to God no matter where we are in our lives? Because of this love. Because it's not about us. If you're a believer, you're welcome to the table to partake as part of the family. But if you are not yet a believer or if you are in unrepentant sin, I would ask that you would remain in your seat. 1 Corinthians says that you would eat and drink in an unworthy manner. If you are in unrepentant sin, you are not here this morning on accident. I don't think we just chose Malachi because it's like, oh yeah, that's a cool book. I think that God wanted us to read this. If you're in unrepentant sin, God, by his word, is calling you to return to him. Be humbled and believe. If you are not yet a believer, you are also not here on accident. As it sits right now, alone in your sin, you deserve nothing but eternal torment because of your sin. But you have a gracious father who is giving you a chance to repent a chance to return and believe in Jesus Christ for the sake of the forgiveness of your sins. For all of us, here's our prayer. Father, we admit that we need this body and this blood to cover our sin of failing to believe you love us. Would you, by your grace, always show us your love? In Jesus' name, amen.